Welcome to the Live Your Legacy podcast. I'm your host, Eric Kelly, and I believe we each make a meaningful contribution by sharing our own unique gifts and talents. I'm excited you're here. Kyle Allen, welcome to the show. How's it going, Eric? Good good to see you, man. It's been a while. Man, it's great to see you. Yeah, I always appreciate our time together. It's always, uh, I appreciate your enthusiasm. I think you have such a keen uh, insight around business and such an entrepreneurial mind. And so it's just always uh, really rewarding to spend some time with you. Yeah, well, I really appreciate it, dude. It's always a pleasure getting to chat with you too. And, um, you know, for those of you guys, uh, I met Eric, you know, what, probably about five years ago now yeah. or so. Um, and Eric was, you know, one of my customers when I was, you know, doing a marketing agency and, yeah. and all that good stuff. So he saw me from when I was first getting started, essentially in this business. Yeah, yeah, yeah doing great work. Uh, since the very beginning. And uh, so I think that's super cool. It's been really fun to watch your career evolve. And so why don't you give some folks maybe a little bit of history, just kind of your origin story and how you first uh, sort of entered into the real estate industry, even in the marketing space. And uh, yeah, we'll just chat a little bit more about what you're doing now. Yeah. So we were talking a little bit off camera um, about a guy named Doug Hopkins. And that was one of my uh, first employers. Uh, so I was 16 years old and, and had a buddy that uh, was, you know, kind of doing some marketing stuff for his mom, who is a, you know, a title rep. And basically, long story short, I got linked up with Doug and I was the guy that I'd get a big box of flyers and I'd go pass them around every neighborhood that, you know, he was buying houses in. Okay. Um, and essentially, that's kind of how I got my start in, in real estate was literally at the very bottom trying to figure out how to get marketing going. And that was at 16. And then at 19, I started my own company when I was at U of A. Um, yeah. It was basically a marketing agency. And mostly what we were doing was installing open house signs at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I kind of grew that to a full-fledged marketing. We're creating websites, uh, CRM systems, fa- Facebook ads, Google ads, pretty much anything that you can kind of uh, think about digital footprints of doing marketing. Uh, gave me a lot of experience, worked with a lot of uh, you know top-notch realtors like yourself. Uh, investors, mortgage companies, title reps, like pretty much anyone that was in the the real estate field that kind of had a good idea of who their ideal customer was, how they were doing marketing to acquire that customer. Um, And then that kind of led me into wholesaling real estate because out of all of those four people, because I always knew I wanted to get in real estate, but I didn't really know what side I fit in, you know? What did that, did the experience at 16... Um, did that spurn uh, an interest in real estate or did you have a sense of that before that age? Uh, at first, I wanted to be an architect and then I realized how long I had to go to school to like be an architect. Yeah. And that just wasn't for me. Um, you know, struggled early on in school and, and, you know, had issues with that. And then as college, you know, kind of progressed, it was just like, how do I finish this? My parents were really like looking at me to be like, hey, you got to go to college. Like that was yeah. the, the norm. Of the traditional thinking, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So when I was, you know, at U of A, I was starting to see, you know, people like Doug, you know, still prosper, still grow. And I met so many other entrepreneurs and business owners when, you know, I was getting started in this business because real estate, everyone's an entrepreneur. Um, Even if you're working on someone's team right now, like you're in, in your own role, you're your own entrepreneur and like trying to figure out how to get your own business, especially since it's mostly all commission. Yeah, that's so true. And the market dynamic when you started, I mean, that was really coming out of the foreclosure sorts of sale era or yeah. where you're going, you were going direct to seller when you were passing out flyers. That was the, that was the idea, right? You were soliciting business uh, with passing out flyers and probably offering different solutions. And, um, you know, I, I know Doug did a ton of marketing and still does, you know, a lot of, a lot of marketing, a lot of TV, yeah. TV, radio. Yeah. So I think I've even seen a few billboards over the years. hundred so. percent. Yeah. And that's kind of what I always liked marketing too. Cause I watched the show Mad Men, if anyone knows that, uh, yeah. the Netflix show. And that really got me into think about marketing. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, getting into architecture and then, you know, I came across marketing. I was like, Oh, that's really cool. Cause like, you learn how to sell something, doesn't matter what you're selling, you can kind of change it up. Yeah. Um, so I thought that was a unique aspect that I was like, okay, let, let's go learn marketing. That's when I you know, got a, a marketing degree from U of A um, and was growing my business at the same time while getting that degree. I told my parents, I was like, I think this is a complete waste of money. I think we you know, should be basically focused on just growing this business, even though it was like not making any money. Um, and I was like, this is where I think I can really do something that's going to be cool and, and change the perspective of our, of our life. Cause I wanted to get into real estate investing. 
yeah. when I met Doug, because I, you know, obviously saw how much money he was making from a distance. Obviously, not like the bank accounts, but you could get an idea. Yeah, you this guy's making good money. Right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and so that kind of got me a good idea of that. But I always figured I had to have a lot of money to even get into real estate. And I think that's where a lot of people are. It's like, dude, I didn't have any money. I started my first company with like less than $5,000, spent it all, figured out, hey, I need to actually sell stuff to make money. Yeah. And I was running out of money. My dad's like, go knock doors. So I'd go knock brokerages. And that's how I first started learning how to sell. Yeah. Um, was going knocking doors to walking in a building like this and not knowing anyone and hoping to God that I'm talking to someone that couldn't purchase my services. Yeah. Um, What'd you learn from that experience? Like um, adversity, uh, yeah. a lot of adversity, a lot of like getting like a thick outer like skin. Um, Cause there's a lot of people, especially when you're cold calling, you're door knocking, you're doing some form of cold outreach. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of no's. And, you know, I didn't really take rejection very well when I was first getting started. Yeah. Um, so I took it personal and yeah. I was like, they didn't like me because of X, Y, and Z, or maybe my idea was stupid. So it's just kind of started diminishing, you know, myself and, self-worth and i think that's one of the biggest thing i learned was like doesn't matter what anyone else thinks like it matters what i think is true and how do i execute on that because just because someone told me no doesn't mean that there's not the next person that told me yes um, and i think that was one of the biggest things from actually going out being and seeing face to face because it's a whole lot different when you're getting hung up on the phone right or someone tells you like fuck off or sorry i'm yeah. gonna cuss or, or yeah we're, we're minimize it. Show. okay no yeah okay <laughs> Um, so anyone that tells you to kind of, you know, get lost, scram, all that good stuff. Like we tried to, you know, mitigate that, but when it's a face to face, it's a whole lot different. Yeah. You feel a little bit differently. Yeah. Yeah. But I also think the flip side of that is that's the greatest way to build relationships is to be face to face with people and share some common interests or conversations or ideas. Yeah. Um, and really understand their vision. And it resonated with me as you were talking about marketing and your original desire to be an architect is that marketing sort of aligns with that in a way because you're taking a, a conceptual vision and then you're building a framework, right, to create that, which is kind of parallel to what architecture does is take a vision for something that somebody wants to create yeah, and, uh, and then build the blueprint for that. And that's what you help people do with marketing, which is super cool. That's actually really cool. I've never thought about it like that, to be honest with you. Yeah. So that's a, that's a cool comparison on those two because... I really do truly like building stuff. I mean, even in my company today, like I'm the integrator. Um, I'm the one building the things, the systems and, and having the team to kind of rely on to, to use them, you know? Yeah. Uh, do I go in there and I sell? Of course, but I go in there to, to try to build this system, this machine that's going to hopefully grow into something bigger. Yeah, I think that's cool that you, um, that you recognize your own personal strengths though in the process because most people that are entrepreneurial lean more towards visionary than integrator. Yeah. So most people that are highly successful as entrepreneurs, at least in my experience, they have a vision and they might be good at selling or they might be good at understanding people and communication, but they usually have an integrator uh, attached to their hip. That's the person that's really making things work. So how do you handle that balance of, of being the entrepreneur, being the leader of a company and being the integrator? Yeah, no, that's definitely a lot. I mean, luckily, I do have a great business partner that I lean on more for kind of that visionary type of role, mm-hmm. um, which helped out a lot. And I think that's also where I think my life and my business also started to explode was when I realized what my strengths were and what my weaknesses were. Like, I could come up with good ideas, but for me to be like the logistics of thinking about how I'm going to achieve those goals, sometimes were a little daunting. Mm-hmm. When you do the math backwards and you really go, here's how much I have to do every single week or every single month to hit these goals, whether it's revenue, whether it's profit or whether it's just lean intake. There's a lot that goes into that um, to figure out what you're going to do to go make $2 million, $3 million a year. And when I was just doing it by myself, I kind of didn't have that forethought or I had the thoughts of like doing it, but I got stumped by like going, okay, it's going to take me so much time to get there. Is that even a realistic goal? Right. Versus just like, he's like, hey, just like, let's do this. And it's like, well, let's build it, you know, and he gets me excited and he gets me seeing the vision. Um, so I think that's really cool as well. And, you know, at first I had to, you know, tap into that to, to lead others and to charge others yeah. and still do. But, you know, I have to do it a little bit less so that way I can kind of focus on my lane of building what I, I think is, is going to help the company. 
Yeah, I think that's so key to accelerating progress and achieving results uh, at scale or significance um, is being able to be in your lane, being able to be in your strength zone more of the time than you're not. Uh, that really tends to move people forward. And I think what's really challenging for most entrepreneurs is a lot, they're solopreneurs, yeah. especially people that are in the business of real estate or traditional real estate. Um, then, you know, they're solopreneurs and the process of achieving anything big is a, is a long-term play. It's not short-term yeah. and there's fatigue in the process because there are a lot of steps and it is a, a steep mountain to climb, as you mentioned. So yeah, how did you how did you get that clarity about these are my strengths and this is where I need to really focus and I need to find partnership or people around me that can be part of my company to to handle yeah everything um, else or most of everything. Yeah, so when I built the marketing company and even my sign company when I was in in college, I had four employees putting out sign for me from when I was first getting started at you know that would be like twenty years old is when I had those four employees um, to then when I started you know. To having my marketing company where I had about like six people underneath me um, and two different management points of view where I was trying to you know figure out how to lean into what I was good at, but I couldn't really find someone that cared enough about the company to share a vision that was just an employee. So I always knew that I was missing something out of like the company structure and just how like the the whole company flowed, even, you know, and I couldn't really put a handle on it until then I came through across a couple of failures. Like COVID was one of probably the biggest failures because my, you know, I was running both the wholesale company, the marketing company, basically simultaneous, the whole world basically freezes and is like, Hey, we're going to start cutting marketing. That was one of the first things to go on everyone's budget. Um, when, when COVID happened and it was like, Oh crap, like what am I going to do now? And so I started thinking about it and I started figuring out, okay, well, here's how I'm going to transition because, you know, yes, this was a great revenue stream, but I'm not going all in on this other business. I know there's more potential here. And I think this is limiting me by my time constraints because I'm okay with the passive income that's getting because the team built around and all that good stuff. Right. So I just started converting those people and luckily I just met the right person at the right time. Yeah. Um, started rebuilding and started kind of keep growing the wholesale company. And then I met my business partner, Lucas at the time. Um, and we just kind of chatted. We were playing poker actually. Um, and that's always a good yeah, place to meet. Exactly. Good business partners. Yeah. Right. And it was an entrepreneur poker event that we do once a week. Yeah. And so there was a bunch of guys there and I would talk to him and he was the only one that was like actually interested in real estate. All my other buddies were, you know, digital marketing agency companies, they were doing Amazon stores, you know, kind of the digital, you know, entrepreneur, uh, which is a great business model, right? Super, you know, super lean and mean, and you can make a lot of money. But when I started to talk with him, he saw like the vision, you know, of like what we could do together. Cause he's like, you have all of like the tools, the systems, the knowledge of like how to do this and you know, what I can help you with. Cause you know, it's a, it's a game of real estate. It's like, people want to talk to people. Right. right. So when you have a good salesperson that you can start relying on, so that's kind of what it brought him on as first was just to be an athlete acquisition guy. So I could send all the leads because I had all these leads coming in. And quite frankly, I'm not the best on the phone. I don't really have great discipline to keep calling people and keep following up. Like I just, I feel like I'm pestering them, I'm bothering them. Like usually when salespeople hit me up, I'm like, yes or no. And I'm just like, if I say no, I'm usually just out. Like I'm, I'm yeah. not interested at all. I swear to God. Yeah. Um, and if it's a maybe, I'll tell you it's a maybe. And like, I'm just very direct on that. And most people are not. So it takes a lot of process to follow up. And he was really good at that. And then I started seeing other tendencies inside of him that, you know, because he came from an entrepreneurial family. His dad owns a printing, co- uh, printing company. His grandpa, you know, owned a couple of businesses too. And yeah. I could tell he kind of had like that knack of like natural leadership and ability. So I was like, he's going to be the visionary in this company. So then eventually I, we ended up actually partnering, you know, marrying together in the business sense. Um, and that's really where the business started exploding because we started, you know, bringing on to be- better people. I could focus on the systems and processes to get them up to speed, yeah. train them, do the things that I could do, and then have him be kind of like leading the charge. Like, hey, here's what we're going to do for revenue. Here's what we're going to do, how many deals, and here's how much money we're going to raise and all this stuff. And hey, you're going to go run it and you're going to go figure out how to do all this yeah. stuff that I want to do. And I think it's cool when you have someone that can kind of hold you accountable too. 
you know, when you're launching a, a new initiative or a new sector inside of the company or a different market that we're working on, it's like, hey, you know, we're spending money on this. Like, this is not just, you know, a, a fun thing that we thought about and like, it'd be cool to do. It's like, we're really going to be doing this. And it's cool to have that accountability partner, uh, but also someone to come up with really good ideas and, and to see them be executed. Um, and then fully played out back, like looking back is, is probably one of my like favorite things about the, the company. Yeah. So yeah, hopefully That's that awesome. maybe answers the question a little bit. Where did you develop um, those skills? You mentioned, you know, Lucas coming from an entrepreneurial family. So where did you develop the work ethic and the, you know, the desire for more? Like most kids at 19 years old in college are not thinking about what business can I run and how can I scale this? Yeah. And <laughs> what other spaces can I go play in? Yeah, so uh, from an early age, uh, so my, my dad owned a trophy company, um, did it on the side, had a W-2 job. And like that was kind of like his first business that he was doing. Um, and I thought it was always cool that, you know, he was making money on the side. We were building these trophies in our garage. Yeah. Um, and that was kind of, you know, one of my first jobs and indirectly was helping him with the trophies and, you know, he paid me 20 bucks or whatever it was to, to help him out for the day. And we just build all these trophies out. And that kind of got me like thinking about money because you, you start thinking about like, okay, well, everything in this world costs something. And at an early age, I kind of picked that up. I was like very like financially conscious of okay, I don't want to be a burden for my parents. Like I know that they have to work all day um, to pay for me and I don't want to be that person that's just willy-nilly spending it. So I started kind of thinking about that from an earlier age. And then once I actually started kind of working, I, I started my first job, like official job that was outside of my dad, was an umpire for baseball, Little League Baseball. Yeah. Um, so I did that and that gave me a lot of adversity too, getting yelled at by parents <laughs> and coaches and even kids, you know, like all that stuff. Like you're, it's one of those ones where uh, your judgment's up for open discussion for everyone. Oh yeah. And so that, I started making good money there because I'd umpire a game. It'd take me two hours, it'd be like 50 bucks or something like that, 50, 65 bucks, depending on what, uh, if I was behind the plate or if I was, you know, on the field, yeah. you know, doing the bases. And so I started saving away money and I, my dad came to me and he's like, Hey, like you should think about investing. Like you got a couple grand now in your bank account. You know, I'm now maybe 14 years old, 15 years old. So I started looking at options and, and different things that I could purchase because I didn't know what else to do with the money. I'm not a big spender. Like I wear stuff like clothes, like for way too long than they probably should be. <laughs> um, I don't need a fancy car or anything like that. So I kind of just was like, all right, well, let's start investing. So one of the first investments I made was in Tesla. Um, invested in like Solar City, a couple other different acquisitions, just like smaller companies. How old were um, when you made at that time, like 16, 17 years old. So you invested um, in Tesla at 16 or something. Yeah. It was a move. Yeah, it was yeah. a great move looking <laughs> back at it. But there was some times where I even questioned it because it would it was like one of those roller coaster stock shows. Yeah. Looked like an EKG. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You're like heck is going on? Like this company has potential, but it's really kind of not making money still. Um, and luckily it was just right timing too, where the economy was starting to pick up um, as that company was really starting to take off too. So, you know, that kind of started getting me thinking about that and like just building out the future and just how I could set myself up financially free a little bit earlier on, because I didn't want to work the rest of my life just yeah. for dollars, like, and then not have any time to spend it and enjoy it or to go with the places or to be with the people I want to be with when I want to be with them. And so I really started getting really aware of that and just tried to surround myself around people that knew more than me, you know, guys like yourself, guys that were out there that were creating a life of their dreams and essentially being able to be financially free to go do the things they want to go do to, to we we're talking to, to go see a Dave Matthews band in Cancun, you know, yeah. uh, like stuff like that, where you're not worried about, Oh shoot, I got a job. Like I can't take off any more PTO. Right. Or, you know, I, I got to do X, Y, and Z. It's like, hey, you run your own company, you can do what you want to do, but it comes with a certain responsibility. Uh, so that's what really got me going at first was, you know, having, you know, I think my family just bringing me up to be like that. My dad's a pretty frugal person. Uh -huh. um, he, he definitely, he, it's funny because he'll do stuff where you're like, Dude, why did you not just pay for that? And I think I picked up a lot of that, but there's certain things that now I've been willing to like, let go out of my life to be like, I'm willing to pay for that because it's going to give me my time back. Okay. And if I get my time back, I think that's more valuable than the task at hand. 100% um, agree. And I think that's the one thing that I've been leaning more towards. But when you're first getting started and you don't have a ton of money, you got to get scrappy. And I think that's really where I learned it from. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, I think the freedom idea 
it, it's interesting because I think people from the outside looking in, they see the freedom part, you know, and I think about that as it reflects in my own life. I'm like, yeah. I'm posting pictures on the beach, but I'm not posting pictures of the seven, 12, 13, 14, 15 hour days in a row that I just worked. Yeah. hundred percent. Right. Yeah. I'm not posting pictures of that. Yeah. And I know the same is true in your case, but it's a remarkable perspective that you had at such an early age about understanding time and financial freedom and being really clear, especially in the, the society that we all grew up in. You went to traditional school, just yeah. like I did, right? A couple decades ago. Anyway. Um, and there's such a conformity about that, about moving on to higher education, getting the college degree. And I'm certainly not faulting that. I think there's a lot of people that that serves well. And those years are great experience, you know, socially, educationally, in a variety of ways. And there's some disciplines, depending on what you want to do with your career, where it's really required that you go do that to be equipped to do what you want to do. Um, but not very many people have that perspective, especially not at your age. Maybe they get it at 25, or maybe they get it at 35, or maybe they get it at 50, and they're like, yeah. oh, I wish I had done this a little differently. But to have that as a teenager and be like, I want the freedom, and that's the most valuable thing, and how do I get there? I mean, that's really remarkable. Yeah. Were there other influences besides your parents and their frugality and the work ethic and the things that they instilled in you in terms of yeah. good values? There was definitely people that I met, um, you know, kind of like that book, like The Millionaire Next Door. Yeah. Um, I was lucky enough to have a couple of those people that lived in my neighborhood that were wealthier individuals that uh -huh. you wouldn't know. They were just a normal guy that lived on your block. And we lived in a cookie cutter, you know, type of house, you know, yeah. Chandler. Um, and when this was, when Chandler wasn't really, you know, as big as it is today. But you're in kind um, of a, a middle, yeah, class middle class neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, middle class neighborhood. And there was a couple of people that, you know, that I knew that were, you know, that owned their own businesses that were running it. And I kind of looked at them and I really was able to see some of the things that they were able to do. Because my dad, uh, he traveled quite a bit for his job and was going out to California, Washington, Oregon, you know, Nevada, Texas, like all over the place. Uh, for business. And, you know, he'd be gone three days out of the, the weekdays traveling. And I saw, you know, other parents and, and family members where they ran their own business, they were here locally, they'd go pick up their kids from the bus stop or anything like that. And don't get me wrong, my dad was there a lot. Yeah. Uh, but my mom was there more than more than my dad was. So kind of seeing that ability to have that freedom to, to show up to pick up the kids or to kind of do the things that they wanted to do or travel, um, which was one of the things that I think I saw a lot where they were going to travel to all these exotic places or, yeah. you know, things. And they weren't worried about, you know, stupid things like, oh, well, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money or, you know, what is the, you know, what is, what is my boss going to think by taking three weeks off? Like, you know, yeah. stuff like that. So I'd see that. And, uh, you know, I always thought it was interesting because I knew that they could afford to not live in our neighborhood, but they still chose to. Mm -hmm. um, and I always thought that was interesting. Like, why would he do that? And it still comes back to like, well, you could be frugal and still have a lot of money, but pay for the things that you want to pay for the time convenience, you know, the ability to have, you know, all those things. So if you want to say no to a client or a customer and because you don't want to go work more, you have the ability to do that. Yeah. You know, if you're not constantly extending yourself and you have all these passive investments and at the time, I mean, he was making, you know, tons of passive investments outside of his business. And it just made me learn a lot about kind of, what truly wealthy people do versus just someone who's making money. Um, and then, you know, when I was in college, uh, a couple of the guys that I worked for, you know, really kind of took me under their wing. You know, they were in their 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, they taught me a lot about connections, building relationships with people, uh, how to actually finances work. And these, all of these guys were, you know, at least 10 plus million dollars in net worth. And yeah. they really taught me about how to structure things and like how to think about it. So I, you know, they had me set up a trust, you know, before, you know, before I even started doing anything and, and setting up LLCs the right way and having the trust on the LLCs and things that you don't maybe learn until you get sued or things that you know right. you have something bad happen to you where you're like, shoot, I thought I was protected or maybe I, I didn't do this the best way. Yeah. Or even just to look at it where, you know, I started having guys where I was talking to and they're like, why are you not buying this house and keeping it as a rental property? Why are you going to sell it to me for 15 grand to make an assignment fee yeah. when you could create long-term wealth where you'll make the 15 grand over the next two years instead off of the cash flow? Right. And it was like, I, I don't know. Why am I doing that? You know, and then 
they really sat down. So it was really, I think it was really nice to be able to see and like, and have someone genuinely not just look at it from a, Hey, I can just take this and I could go make the long-term wealth, like teaching and, and giving back. So I try to do that as much as I can and, you know, try to help other people to do that too. Um, Cause I think that's one of the biggest things it's like you learn to earn to return. Um, and if you can keep returning it back to other people, like your, your wealth is only going to grow, you know, not in spirituality or not even just in money, spirituality, health, wellness, all that good stuff. Like it's yeah. going to continue to keep growing. Man, I love that philosophy. And I hope everybody heard that because that really embodies the spirit of abundance. You learn to earn to return. I didn't make it up. So I, I, yeah. I heard then, it from Jim Quick, if you know who Jim Quick Yeah, is. sure. And, but, but then by returning, you're equipping other people in the learn phase yeah. and equipping them to earn. And so it's just creating a real perpetual cycle. Yep. And then you learn it even more when you're teaching someone else. So as you're teaching someone else, you get even better and then you become more of an expert in that field. Yeah. Um, well, that's another expression, you know, the fastest paths, fastest path to mastery is to teach. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love it. And, you know, it gets, it's a little weird when you're first trying to learn it, but try to still teach people at least what you know, because, you know, especially in the, the game of real estate, the other stuff that comes across my desk that I have no idea how to deal with. And it's like, who do I know that maybe knows how to do this or who can I talk to about this that might be able to give me the best advice? Yeah. And having that network of connections to, to do that is, is priceless. You, you can't put a, a price tag on that because you'll call up some of these guys and they'll be like, Oh yeah, yeah just do this, this, and this. Uh, it's really that easy. Yeah. Just, it's that easy. Here's, you know, so-and-so's contact if you need any help. Yeah. And it's like, it's okay. familiar to them. Yeah. It's super familiar with them. Because but they're me, it's, like it's just a new experience for you. That's all it is. Yeah. Well, I think what's, uh, you know, I think it really speaks to um, the quality of people that you attracted into your life, but that's how you sh showed up too. I mean, you had a strong work ethic, you had an entrepreneurial vision, you had the courage to go out, go out and do it, which yeah. is what holds a lot of people back. Um, and you were willing to ask for help, which I think also holds a lot of people back yeah. because they're like, oh, I should know this. Or, you know, you were just very open about, I have no idea how to do this, but I, I was willing to make the call. And ask somebody else, and uh, not be intimidated by that. Yeah. And they gave me a really simple, quick answer. So yeah, definitely not the easiest thing at first. But once you do it a couple of times, you're like, "Why don't I always do this?" <laughs> you know, like yeah. especially if you truly don't know, um, like ask someone. Like typically, it's going to be a lot better off than like making a blind decision, especially like in the investment space that I'm in. It's like you know, we'll talk to people about certain neighborhoods or certain locations or even just. You know, if it's like a condominium, there's certain condominiums that you just got to stay away from, like the HOA is out to get you right. um, type of things. And it's like the more that you have those conversations and you're creating that community, the, the better you can make decisions and avoid some pitfalls to lose money because it's really easy to do that. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think that. I think that when you're asking those questions of, of people that are maybe a little bit more seasoned in an area or maybe they just have a different experience um, or area of focus. I actually think it's really a gift to most of those people um, because it's a rewarding experience for them to be able to pass on their knowledge. It's a rewarding experience for them to be able to help you or to help me, right? Yeah, I know. And I think that the, the circles that you run in and I run in and some of the common folks that we probably know are generally givers at heart. Yeah. You know, they're not takers. Like they, they genuinely have a desire to help other people. And um, so I think it's important, especially for anyone uh, listening that may be hearing your words and thinking, wow, I want to, there's something I want to step into, or I, I want to um, expand my vision, whether it's in real estate or entrepreneurship. Um, the willingness to, to go out and ask is generally going to be very well received by uh, the right people. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. And if someone tells you no, there's another person to tell you yes. You Correct. know what I mean? So just like, just keep doing that. And there's definitely been times where I've asked questions and someone said, like, oh, I don't want to tell you that. It's proprietary, you know, thing that we're working on. I can't share information about that. And it's like, no worries. Like, you know, and I'll ask someone else and be like, oh, this is what we're doing. And it's like, okay. Like someone else right before just basically said like, this is like the Coca-Cola recipe. Like right. it's a lockdown. <laughs> And you're open to sharing it. And I think that's kind of how we've run our business and, and share a lot. And it, it always reciprocates. And, you know, that's not the goal or the intentions of it. Um, but I think when you give enough, you know, things come back to you naturally and, you know, good things happen. And plus also, 
when you look back at it, it's like, if I can change and shape this world and, and maybe impact someone else's life, I think that's going to be really important. Yeah. Um, it's something I can look back on and be proud, not just about how much money I made, but the impact that I had in maybe someone else's life. Yeah. So. Well, and it creates a powerful ripple effect. And, and to me, that's immeasurable because you never know how far yeah. those ripples extend from something like that. So let's talk a little bit about what you're up to now and your vision and sort of the from the marketing company and really starting in the early days of, of real estate. Let's talk about that transition period for you and, and the place that you're at today. Yeah. So it got to a point where we were mostly focused on lead generation and you know, outsourcing essentially the sales component. So just be like, hey, here's all these leads. They'd come in naturally as soon as someone fill out the form. And how are you generating leads? Uh, Facebook, yeah. So Facebook ads, Instagram ads, Google ads, uh, Bing ads, YouTube. Uh, Those were the most common ones. We did text message marketing, email marketing too as well. But mostly it was the the, the four that I mentioned right before. Mm -hmm. Um, So we were doing that and I was running basically ads for people in a lot of states, you know, pretty much at a a time we ran ads in like four different states. So we had a pretty good idea of certain markets and what was working. And I kind of just started getting to a point where, you know, the wholesale business started picking up a little bit more where I could do, you know, two, three deals and like offset what I was making in the marketing company. And I'm like, this is kind of crazy. But I also, when I shut down the first assigned company, I didn't really like the transition that I did because I went from like basically making 10 grand a month to making nothing and like fully going into the next next company. Right. Um, didn't sell a company, didn't do anything. And I thought that was a little bit of a stupid move looking back at it being 20 years old. Uh, yeah. But uh, then the next it was transition... Just a lesson. It was a lesson. Education. Yeah. yeah. It was a little more costly than some of the other ones. It was right? definitely a costly one. Um, so then, you know, what I really started to figure out was like, okay, if I could grow this business and I can keep going it, um, this marketing company, essentially, I could just be my own marketing company for my own you know, for my wholesale company. I don't have to worry about, you know, going to generate all this business for someone else. And then, you know, just getting basically the scraps that's left over for my marketing fees. Because uh, we weren't doing anything that's very common right now in the marketing industry where it's like, uh, you know, an equity split model. It's like, hey, if this lead closes out, you'll give me 25% referral fee. Right. You know, that wasn't really common back then. Uh, there was a handful of people that were doing it, but they were, you know, the top premier, you know, lead generating companies. So I didn't really want to try to compete with them in that space. So I was like, why don't I just do this myself um, and really grow this company to be, you know, something that I can be proud of that I don't need to worry about, you know, this small little marketing company. I think the pie is a whole lot bigger over here. Mm-hmm. So started just transitioning out and it just started literally just not taking on any new clients was my first approach was like, someone reaches out to me, the automatic answer is just no. Yeah, And it's really hard when you got people coming to you and you're like, and it's a referral or it's someone that, you know, even just found you on social media that you've spent all this time to build up this platform. You're like, no, I can't help you. Right. And that was one of the things that I think the power of saying no to certain things really allowed me to then free up my time to then start growing my company and growing it, but also imploring and, and finding good people that work inside with me. So now today, you know, looking at our company, it's about eight people that we run, uh, you know, not including Lucas, myself. So 10 people total, if you include us, Um, you know, we have acquisition guys, the disposition guys, guys in different states, you know, we're doing virtual training with them to, you know, we have our own office here in Tempe, about two miles away, you'll have to stop by. Yeah. Um, And, you know, essentially what we, what we do is we're an investment company. So we wholesale real estate is kind of one of the approaches that we do. We fix and float real estate and then we buy and we hold rentals. So okay. that's our three prong approach, right? So it's like, if it doesn't work in wholesale, it doesn't work to flip it. If it doesn't work to flip it, can keep it as rental. Mm-hmm. And we just kind of go down the list. And we also think about, you know, just use cases, what our bandwidth is, because we've definitely overextended ourselves. We tried to get as much leverage as we possibly can. Not always the best idea, right? You right. always hear that point of view where it's like, oh, leverage is great, but you don't realize that until you take out millions of dollars on hard money loans. You're like, yeah, leverage is not that great paying that that, that off, especially in a market that froze on us just recently. Yeah. Um, we're, stressful. Yeah, it was stressful. It was like a 30-day closeout uh-huh. to now like 90 to 120 days, yeah. days on the market when you're when you're done with it. Plus, I got all the time for the construction. Yeah. So when we started to lose your net profit, oh, big right? time changes your net model significantly. Yeah, you you go from you know making you know forty grand to maybe making ten grand now. Yeah, um, and you know, or losing money on some of these deals that we lost money on. So we started kind of really doing that. You know, last year we built. Uh, you know, we basically 
built our rent, rental portfolio. We added 30 units last year. Uh, the goal is to add another 50 this year um, and kind of do that. Mostly our rental portfolio is specifically focused in Phoenix right now, multifamily specific. We have a handful. We only have two single family houses that we kept as rentals. Um, mostly just because the scalability with multifamily I just felt like it was easier. Yeah. Go buy a fourplex, a nine unit, a 10 unit, add it to the portfolio. It takes a heck of a lot less time than doing nine acquisitions for that same nine unit. Right. Um, so we started kind of adding those and even just from a management point of view too, not having four single family houses all scattered around. I have one fourplex that sits right there. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of what we've been focused on that side and, and really growing it um, has been our most, our, our biggest passion right now, especially with the market kind of freezing. Yeah. Uh, we're seeing a lot of opportunities that still work in pencil for rentals, nice. uh, even with kind of what's going on, just because you got a lot of people that are in distress that need to sell these assets that either did kind of what I just said that I just did, where I went to go overextend myself on a lot of leverage yeah. and someone else did the same thing, but you know, didn't get out of the situation or didn't have enough capital to get out of the situation. Um, so we've been capitalizing on some of those. And then we've been really growing our wholesale company. Um, that's kind of been one of our big focuses because it allows us to have more of an impact than the rentals do. Because the rentals are great. I'm able to provide, you know, last year I could say I helped 30 families to put a roof over their head, yeah. you know, which is a great thing to do. But at the same time, like I'm really helping, you know, right now eight people to essentially make a hundred grand each. And like, I think that's a lot cooler than just, you know, putting a roof over 30 people's heads. Like, how do I create that financial freedom for other people inside of my company? Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm really focused on and like really excited about. Um, because, you know, as you, you've seen it, I mean, as being in the real estate and on the, on the traditional side, I mean, you, you can see an Asian that maybe does, you know, uh, you know, $20,000 their first year in commissions and then does 200,000 their second year. Yeah. And it's like, it's a cool and a rewarding thing, especially if you're in their circle, you've helped them out to achieve that goal. Um, so I think that's like one of the things that I'm really passionate about. And also my business partner is too, is like growing that company. And then with the market kind of freezing, we still are going to flip some properties just because we get so many deals. Yeah. Um, last year we did right around like 80 deals or so like wholesale wise. So that's we get great. a lot of opportunities that we're seeing and, um, taken advantage of. So we'll take on probably about, you know, five to 10 flips this year. Um, last year we went a little bit more crazy around the 15 to 20 side, um, just because the market was good. And then we started getting a little cocky with our underwriting because the market was like just playing this weird game where you were playing a guessing game almost where it was like, where can I sell this house at and how much can, can I make even if I was, I'm just buying it and selling it to someone else, or if I'm going to take it on and, and then flip it to an end user. Yeah. Um, so we'll still, we'll still flip some houses. It's just right now, it's not the market for it. Um, there's money out there. If you find a really good deal or if you have, you know, we just realized we're not the best construction managers. Yeah. So like managing the projects from start to finish is it's in its own art. And that's one of the things that we, I think, lack on. And we're trying to get better at it, obviously, because one of the topics that I told you that we've been really focused on is how do we vertically integrate everything inside of our company so that way we can maximize each opportunity versus you know just being like okay we'll just wholesale it out to you know let's say x y and z contractor who's going to run the whole project and make the money on it yeah we made an upfront fee we had zero risk into it so there's a lot of great things with that um but we want to obviously maximize every deal that we possibly can so if we can take on more deals run the projects more effectively and even have more money that we're raising uh, to put towards those projects that's going to help us out you know and help the whole company out too as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that um, there's so many different disciplines that become part of running a business like yours. And uh, I think that's even true in a, in a traditional real estate realm or almost any entrepreneurial environment. And so taking the ones that you're really good at and then finding the leverage or, you know, even with vertical integration, probably need somebody to lead that. Like you get a, need a good leader for the construction division. Yeah, big time. To make that thing home. So for somebody that uh, has an interest in getting started in real estate, um, you started out with not a ton of capital. So how did you start to get traction when you were trying to do your first flip or your first wholesale deals? And what did that process um, look like in growing into acquiring 30 doors last year. Yeah. So, I mean, like the biggest thing, if you don't have a bunch of money and you're first getting started, just focus on wholesaling. I get so many people that reach out to me and they're like, 
oh, I, hey, I want to go buy the 30 units like you did. And I want to get the passive income. I'm like, you don't realize like that was the byproduct of like doing all these other deals right. that allowed me to do that. You know what I mean? Because if it was just me going out and you take away my wholesale company, there's no way I acquire 30 units. How many wholesale deals do you think you had done in your career at that point when you started acquiring the uh, over a hundred, probably closer to 200, closer to 200. Yeah. Years. Yeah. So that's that process again. Exactly. Right? That's that seven to yeah. 10, 12, 15 hour work days. Yeah, that nobody a lot sees. of days. And, yeah. and some of those deals, yeah, I would make some really good money on, but some of those deals I'd only make 1500 bucks, three grand on yeah. five grand on, you know what I mean? So it's like, that's, I think the other thing, everyone thinks every wholesale deal you're going to make 30 grand on or something like that. It's yeah. like, the reality of it is it's like sometimes the numbers weren't right or sometimes, you know, I couldn't find a buyer for the property in time. So I have to settle for a, a lower offer or whatever the situation might be because um, it's a very time sensitive business. Um, so to wholesale, yeah. you want to build a list of interested buyers, mm -hmm. potential buyers that are also investors. Yeah. And then you want to find sellers that have a need to sell and they're willing to sell at a discount below current market value. Yep. And then you're just being a matchmaker. Exactly. So it's very similar, I think, about being a realtor. Uh, the only difference is, is that I'm not working for a commission. I'm working for an assignment fee. Yeah. Um, so we obviously disclose everything to the sellers. We talk to them about, here's what we're doing. Because there's, there's, they're going to know, right? It's like, yeah. it's on the settlement statement. I can't just be like, Oh yeah. Hey, like surprise. Yeah. This like, just don't look at that part on the statement. Right. If you're uh, investing or you're in real estate, disclosure is a keyword. Yeah. Disclosure is a keyword. Yeah. yeah. So what I would do is if I was getting started, have very little money, I would really focus on building up the buyers list. Okay. And that's what I did. Right. Um, there's a lot of guys out here, you know, Keegley, I'm sure you're familiar with them right. and that's kind of what they focus on. So that's what I focused on at first too. Um, I went the direct to seller route. That's how I got my first couple of deals. Um, spent more money acquiring those deals than I would have liked to, especially because you know I was trying to make this you know transition from my marketing to this. So I was using the funds from here to basically pay for this company because it wasn't really making any money yeah. um, at first. And then you know what? Then I started doing was I started realizing I'm like, why don't I just find the end buyers for these? it's going to be a whole lot easier and then I can go sell one other people's deals. So that way I don't have to be the one talking to the seller. Cause that was kind of a weakness of mine, to be honest, was I, I don't, I don't love talking to sellers. Sometimes I feel like I'm maybe too nice or, you know, cause some of these acquisition guys, like if you get a really like good acquisition guy, like they're not the most friendly person with them. Like they're pretty stern. They're like, yeah. you know, they might have friendly tendencies, but, um, they're pretty, they're kind of sharks sometimes. It's what okay. I like to, to say. That goes against um, your natural. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally so I, you know, surprising. I want to give everyone the most amount of money for their house possible. And I'm the acquisition guy. Yeah. And on the vice versa, the acquisition guys is to make the most amount of money for the company. Yeah. So you can see where there's a little bit of an You're bought into the yeah. seller's story. Yeah. They're, they're I'm like, I want to help you, man. I want to help you get out of the foreclosure. You know, well, and I know that's your heart too. So yeah. that's that's very true. But it's kind of surprising because you mentioned uh, developing a thick skin and cold calling and door knocking and stuff. You know, to start your business. Yeah. So I'm kind of surprised that that I got weird. area. I stopped doing it. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Um, yeah. So I, I would start with the buyers list, and I would start connecting with you know other wholesalers that have deals, whether that might be myself or anyone else that's out in the business. And, you know, start asking to help to sell their deals. Okay. And then basically, if you find a buyer, you'll make some money. It's a quick, easy process because, you know, if you start for like how I did where my first deal, I literally was cold calling sellers. And then I then got the deal. I got the contract and I freaked out. I was like, who the heck am I going to sell this to? Yeah. And I only have, I think it was like seven days on the contract to sell it. And then I needed to get like the total funds in 10 days from today. And I was like, I've, and it was only like $200,000, which sounds like a lot of money, but like for most people in the real estate investment space, a $200,000 house usually flies pretty fast. Yeah. Um, when you're starting to get up in the hundreds, you know, the, the 500, 600, it takes them maybe a little bit longer, but, uh, you know, I was freaking out. I was like, Oh my God, like this guy, he just trusts me with this. I got a signed contract. I, I met him at Village Inn. Uh, <laughs> and, I was like, what am I going to do? So I started literally posting on Facebook marketplace. I started posting all over the place. Luckily I knew some investors too, as well. So I started reaching out to them. I ended up selling it to one of my buddies who happens to be named Kyle too, as well. Um, and you know, he made a hundred grand on that deal when I, when I sold it to him. Yeah. So he flipped it. 
So he went through the process. Oh yeah, it was a great deal for him. I made $12,000 on the deal. I remember because that was also my lucky number. Okay. Um, so I knew 12,000 is your yeah, lucky number? Yeah. Or 12, 12 <laughs> is my lucky number, not 12,000. Uh, but I was like, I just remember, I was like, oh, this is so sweet. But then there was a couple of deals that I did right after that where I didn't go to the seller and I made like seven grand. So it's like a little bit less, but I didn't have to do twice as much work. Because if you're finding the seller plus the buyer, yeah. that's two parts of the equation. If I'm just doing one part of the equation and making like basically a 60% of the amount of money, yeah. it's not too bad. So you know? the wholesaler has gone to the seller. Yeah. They've locked up the contract. Locked it up. Yep. So they have the agreement to sell at a specific price. And then you're basically just marking it up. The other wholesaler is, and then you're adding on some, and then you're making that spread. Yeah. And then there would be a couple of guys that I would talk to where they'd just be like, hey, like, I don't know what you're doing on the side to like find all these buyers and like selling these houses for more money. Yeah. Um, but what I'd like to do is I'd like to partner up with you and can we go 50-50 on these deals? What I'll do is I'll go lock up with the seller. Yeah. And then you go sell it to your buyers and yeah. then we'll just split. So if it's a $20,000 assignment fee, 10 for you, 10 for me. And then let's go from there. And that really started helping me because then I wasn't the one having to do those acquisitions. Yeah. So I could just focus calling the buyers, the people with the money and just go, hey, I got this deal. Here's the numbers on it. Here's why I think you should buy this property. Uh-huh. And then that also got me connected with a lot of, you know, really great high net worth individuals, especially here in Phoenix that were buying a lot of volume because I was calling them. You build some good friends with them too. And you sell yeah. them some good deals to make them some money. And they go, Oh, Kyle's calling. Let's pick up the phone. Yeah. You know, let's see what he has to, you know, when you're calling about. him regularly, exactly. you're building rapport, yeah. building a relationship. Yeah. yeah. And you said a key word in there, which was focus. What that allowed you to do is focus on the thing that you're really good at or one of the things you're really good yeah. at, but not fragment your focus across other things that maybe were not as natural to you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, once we started getting that going, uh, you know, I started obviously, you know, going, well, how do I get some of my own deals coming in too? Yeah. Um, because now we have, you know, some more money that's coming in. And my biggest thing, as soon as I get more money coming in, I'm like, how do I spend it more on marketing? Yeah. Um, cause I think marketing is the, the, the fuel for every business, right? Like without it, you run in a business with no marketing, um, you know, you're not going to get very far. And I think there's a lot of people that even look at like referrals and it's like, Oh, that's not marketing. I think that's marketing in my, sure in my head. I think referral marketing is probably one of the best marketing to do. So we really focus on doing that. If there's um, money attached to it, it's marketing. Exactly. In my estimation. Yeah. A hundred percent. Even if it's just networking, I mean, that's marketing. Yeah. Um, so I started thinking about it and, and I started working on how to get some of these direct deals. So we started, you know, creating new marketing strategies, going direct to seller, going to other agents, building out our wholesaler list. So that way we can find more deals like that 50-50 partnerships or even just tacking on a fee on top of it. Um, and that really started just blowing up. So I had to have someone else to kind of handle all the acquisition side because there was so many properties coming in where I one couldn't get eyes on them, couldn't really actually underwrite them properly to to be like, this is a good deal. You should take a look at it. And then, you know, then that kind of started evolving where we're like, hey, we need to have a whole acquisition team that's doing this and starting to look at it, underwriting these deals, talking with these sellers, basically making sure like we're not missing opportunities. Yeah. Um, and I went a route where I think a lot of people in the, the wholesale business, they go, let's go virtual. Um, let's take on people that are out out of the country, overseas, and like kind of getting that VA route, which don't get me wrong, we have VAs in our company. Yeah. We just don't use them for anything on the sales side. Sure. They're all focused on backend stuff with me. And then all everyone here is all US-based. They're in our office. They're talking with these guys or they're in their their office in, you know, let's say our Florida office or something like that, right? Yeah. Um, that's where they're focused at. But I think that's where a lot of people, they try to outsource like one of the most important things, which is the sales process. Yes. And I think that's a huge mistake. I think you need someone internal that is going to answer the phones, that's going to be able to be trained, that knows the location too. If I told you Awatuki, yeah. right, you know what Awatuki is, right? Oh, like, yeah. You know, if I told someone that was in a virtual assistant there and, you know, I, told, I was like, hey, like, you know, if you see a house in Awatuki, let me know. Yeah. I'm like, I got a buyer for it. And they're like, where the hell is Awatuki? Like, I don't even see it. You know what I mean? They're doing yeah. a Google search. Like, is not on the map. I just see Phoenix right, or Arcadia. You know what I mean? Like things like that, where um, it's the lingo inside of things that people don't really understand um, that don't live in the places that you're doing real estate. And real estate is a very local place um, oh, and, a, and a local thing. So you got to have experts in, in each local market that understand what's going on. 
And that's one of the things that we started really focusing on building um, because then it builds those relationships a lot easier. Whether I'm talking to a seller, I'm talking to a realtor that I'm negotiating with, whether I'm talking to another wholesaler. You know, I had a wholesaler send me a deal the other day. Um, it was a block away from where I flipped another house. And I called him or he called me about the deal. And he's like, hey, I got this deal. It's on Keems. I was like, oh, is that off of Bethany Homes? Like seventh. And he's like, yeah. I was like, okay. It's like Rose Lane, like right there. He's like, yeah. It's like a block away. I was like, how far away is this address? So I gave him the address. He's like, oh, it's like two blocks away. I was like, okay. So I already had an idea of like what yeah. the numbers were in my head of what I sold that house for because I fully renovated it. I go, does the house have a pool? Yes, it has a pool, but it needs work. And, and then it was actually the same layout. So I knew exactly how the house was laid out already. So I didn't have to spend time wasting to walk through it. To be sure. like, oh, this is a funky layout or it's not. Um, and I just looked through the photos. I'm like, oh, this is going to be a heavy renovation. But if that deal lines up, it's like that could be worth $100,000 if we flipped it. Maybe if I just wholesaled it. You know, maybe it would be, you know, ten thousand dollars that I make or something like that. Yeah. But just getting to know that and it's like I didn't even have to really run the numbers on the house or anything like that. Really just having that instinctual thing because I know the area and I know the location. And Zach keeps him. I'm sure you maybe know who Zach is. Yeah. Um, he's really good at that. I'll give him like zip codes and he'll be like, Oh yeah, I flipped three houses in here last year at this price and this price and this price. I bought it for these, I put in this much money. And he'll like riddle me off the full address, the whole purchase price, the everything. And then you'll look it up and he's like spot on. And you're like, how? And yeah. repetition, practice. Yeah. And being market knowledge. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. It's such a good point. So know, know your local market for sure. Mm -hmm. If you're going to endeavor this, I think is critical. So uh, in addition to achieving everything in the business realm, uh, you just finished an Ironman. I did. Yeah. Let's talk about that. <laughs> what was the motivation? Why on earth would you want to go run and bike and swim for over 70 miles? Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, it's a, it's a question I, I asked myself too. So, and especially and I paid, I paid to do that? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah right, I paid exactly. to do it too. Um, a few events like that too, so you know I'm teasing. Yeah, no, I know. No, I haven't um, done an Ironman, just to be clear. <laughs> I don't know that I'll ever do an Ironman, but... I think you I, could I, though. I think you got it in you. Great, uh, great respect for... Uh, anyone who takes on a personal challenge like that. Yeah. And uh, so talk about uh, what inspired you to do it and, and that process. Yeah. So I watched one of my, my buddies recently do the one here in Arizona. Mm -hmm. um, I did that same race back in 2019. Um, and I looked at it and I was like, ah, I kind of got like a little bit of like FOMO where I was like, cause he told me he was going to do that race. And I was like, now nah, dude, I'm like focused on my business and like really just trying to grow. Yeah. Um, like I don't have time to train right now. Like it's just, it's a big time commitment to be honest. And he hit me up after he finished. Cause I saw him, you know, finished. And I was like, just like so excited. And he, he beat me by like two minutes too on that. It's uh, uh, so a little competitiveness yeah. too as well. So I was like, Oh God, he beat me like freaking two minutes. You know, it's like, if only he just came in like two minutes behind me, like I wouldn't have to maybe do another one. So um, he then reached out to me. He's like, Hey, I want to do the one in Oceanside. Um, so that's where I did, ended up training and just doing it this last weekend. Um, but uh, he's like, let's do one in Oceanside. Cause afterwards he's like, you want to do another one with me? And I was like, uh, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, let me think about it. Let me get back to you. He ended up buying his ticket and then he's kept training and kept doing his thing from that one. Just kind of kept building on it. Yeah. And I kind of was like, I don't know. So I talked to Sam and there was something inside of me that was just like, this is the right time to do it. Let's just do it now. Yeah. Um, I felt like I had a little bit more flexibility because of some of the things that I built and kind of had some time back. Yeah. So I was like, let's go ahead. Let's try this out. Let's do it again. So started training again for it. Um, a little bit, what of that? November or so, like November, like late November, maybe like early December, I started training and started getting back into it. I already had all my equipment and stuff like that from the other races that I did and, and kept bike riding a little bit, but nothing too much. It mostly was just running. Um, and it was, that was a brutal course. Uh, Oceanside is definitely not one I would mess around with. So really? I got in the swim to start it off. Uh, it was freezing. It was like 50 degrees. You're swimming in the Pacific Ocean? Yeah. Well, they they moved it last minute because the, the wake was too much. Okay. Um, so they moved it to the harbor, but still it's, you know, seawater. It's sea cold. Water. Yeah. Um, there was seals in the water with us too, which was a little wild. Not um, the Navy seals. Not the, the Navy seals. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so started off, I basically had a little panic attack when I first got on the water because it's freezing cold. 
uh, your heart rate just kind of is a little hard to control. Yeah, wetsuit. Yeah, wetsuit. Yeah. Um, thank God, I would. I think they made it wet. You had to have a wetsuit to be able to swim because it's that cold. Yeah. Um, I hopped onto the bike. I didn't really train too hard on the bike. The bike's my least favorite out of everything. Like I go swim and run any day of the week. You put me on a bike, I'm like dreading it. Yeah. So get on the bike. I start, you know, doing our thing. We go it's to the longest camp. part of the race. It is the longest part of the race. And I probably should have spent more time on it. Um, so start going through Camp Pendleton, start kind of doing our thing. And then we start climbing hills. So there was 25,000, uh, 2,500 elevation gains. So it, to give you an example, it's basically going up Camelback twice okay. um, is kind of the elevation game on it. So you go up that and that's a lot. And then I realized my, uh, basically my, my shifters weren't shifting into my down gears as I was trying to climb all these hills. So that really slowed me down quite a bit. I probably should have had my bike looked at right before I went to the race, but that's also my fault. So you learned some critical lessons. Yeah, so learned some things. Journey. Yeah, so the bike took me a little bit longer for that reason, plus the elevation game just, you know, throws a wrench in it sure. too. But ended up finishing that and then finished the run pretty strong because that's kind of one of my stronger suits. Okay. Um, but I finished a little bit under seven hours, but my buddy still beat me. Uh, he beat me by an hour. So he was going hard training. He was training a lot harder than I was. was he? Yeah. So it wasn't purely the equipment issue. No, it wasn't. No, he, no, <laughs> he I was, was definitely, no, no. <laughs> so he ended up finishing and, you know, I think what really just kind of went back to it in my head, like while I'm doing it, while I'm training for all these months was just like. I think putting myself in an uncomfortable situation um, because I kind of started getting comfortable physically where I was like, Oh, it's okay. I'm going to the gym every now and then I'm still staying in shape. Like I wasn't trying to hit a peak of fitness by any means, but I was hitting all these other peaks inside of my life with, you know, my girlfriend, Sam to our business to just, you know, personal happiness and all that good stuff. But I wasn't hitting any peak in my physical fitness. I was like, I need to try to focus on that because that is important to me. Um, so that's kind of what made me want to do it a little bit and just kind of looking back at it. Will I maybe do another one? Maybe. I mean, I don't really have any intentions of like signing up for another one like tomorrow. Yeah. Um, Cause it is a lot and it's just a lot of time that you have to dedicate towards it to, to, to be in it. But there's so many amazing people that I meet throughout that process. And every time I've done one, yeah. um, you know, Spencer Gladwell, you might know who Spencer is. He actually uh, did that race too, as well. Oh, cool. um, so, you know, just seeing people like that, that are here, that are pushing themselves that, you know, uh, I think he's been doing Ironman for 15 years. So it's like cool to like see stuff like that and yeah. like see other people pushing. Um, because I think it just keeps you like, you know, humble of like, Hey, like there's still more out there for, for you to go and, and achieve. Yeah. So. It's amazing how far our capacity will go. Yeah, big time. I, at first, I had no idea what an Ironman was when I first signed up for the first one. Yeah. And after I Googled it, I was like, oh, wow, that's like way more than I thought it was. Like, I was thinking like, this is going to be like smaller. <laughs> I, and then I started looking, I was like, how long would it take typically for someone to do an Ironman? And, you know, I was like, six hours of basically going nonstop, like, I was like, that's, that's a lot of motion. Yeah, it's a lot of motion. So just timing and just staying focused on it too. And it gives you a lot of mental straightness to be like, okay, like I'm okay with, because you don't really see the results. You don't, you know what I mean? Like you don't see anything where you're like, oh, like I'm running a little bit faster. Like there's not like these big jumps right. that you can really have in like that type of like a fitness, especially in a long activity like that. Um, but you just kind of get impressed with yourself that you're going to keep going when you have the cramp or when you have, you know, the, the, you know, your legs spazzing out on you while you're running and you're three miles left to finish out the race. Run. It's fine. Like, I'm just going to keep going, you yes. know, and like not focus on that. And also just, you know, seeing all the other people cheering them on and like cheering yourself on, like giving that like mental attitude, of, like what's another three miles I did 67 at this point. Yeah. You know, like what's another three. Yeah. So that's amazing. <laughs> well, a huge congrats to you and incredible accomplishment. Um, you've done some pretty remarkable things when you reflect on what you've accomplished and what you built and what you're building now. What, what's the thing you're proudest of? I think the thing I'm proudest of is, is at the moment right now, Basil Holdings, my company. Yeah. Um, it's been one of those things where it has a lot more of a, an impact than some of my other companies had. Okay. Um, you know, not only just, you know, financially, but also just 
like the joy of like building like what I've always wanted to build. Mm-hmm. Um, cause I always knew I wanted to get investing. And I kind of mentioned that earlier where I thought I needed a bunch of money, which some investing does need a lot of money. Don't get me wrong, but, um, you know, really building out and just like having an impact with all my guys in my sales team, where I took a couple of them from W2 jobs. One was a teacher. One was, you know, working at ADP here locally and, you know, bringing them and, and having them make more money in a couple months than they made in the whole year. Like that, that gets me excited about like why I wake up in the day. Yeah. Um, and then also just like helping other people and like solving these situations where every day is a new journey um, on that track. And there's, I guarantee my phone has a, a new issue that I need to go figure <laughs> out to get off of this. And I think that's one of the things I really love about it is constant problem solving. And I felt like, a little bit with my other companies, it was a little bit more predictable. I could, you know, kind of understand what I was doing. There wasn't a whole lot that changed. Um, you know, I need to be very in tune with you know our marketing to our financial situation to you know what's going on in the economy. You know, on a worldwide uh, you know basis to even a local basis to also even understanding what's going on in the stock market because that affects real estate. You know, too sure. as well. Um, and also just, you know, when we go raise money, the stock market's down and you got a bunch of money in the stock market, you're not going to go liquidate those stocks to go put in real estate. Right. You know, like you're going to keep the, you know, the stocks you have because you think Google's going to go right back up to whatever it was, yeah. um, which I don't blame you. I do the same thing that's yeah. what I'm doing with some of mine, right? I'm like, it's going to come back and that's what I'll sell it. <laughs> right. Or maybe I won't. Right. Um, but I think that's allowed me to have the biggest impact and, and, really something I'm like truly excited about building. Um, Cause eventually our goal is to turn it more into a hedge fund, um, you know, where people can invest and, and put in place money. Cause right now we're only able to work with the accredited investors. Um, so it makes it a little bit harder, especially cause we get a lot of people that reach out to us that are like, Hey, I got $15,000. How do I start getting into real estate? Or I got $50,000. How do I get into real estate? Yeah. And you know, some of those people we can help some of them we can't. Um, and it just kind of depends. And we talk to them like, Hey, like, I think you should do this. Or I, you know, if you have time, you should start learning how to wholesale real estate because that can help you to understand all the fundamentals of it without having to place any real money inside of the deal. And then you can make active income, which is what you need because most people have active income issues. They don't have investment issues. Mm -hmm. Most people think, Oh, I need to save money to, to go make, you know, these investments. And it's like, that's one component of it. But if you have that fundamental learning how to save, but you can increase your income by, let's say, 2x of what you made last year, right. inherently, you're going to have more money that you're going to have to invest. So stop worrying about just how to save money because that's important, but it's not the end-all be-all because you can only save to zero, right. right? but you can earn infinity. So how do you figure out how to earn infinity? I think that's what the whole thing is really cool. Um, Because it gives you that ability if you don't have money to start learning the fundamentals of real estate investing. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think about it's kind of like it's like day trading, but without money, you know. So it's like there's like very little risk. So it's like if this works out well, we make 15 grand. If this doesn't work out well, I cancel the contract and I move on. Right. You know, I get my earnest money back and I, I do another deal. Yeah. So all you're really risk risking is your time. Yeah. That's all your your time. And if you have time, use it, you know, use it wisely. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So, um, as we wrap up, I always like to finish and, uh, ask about legacy. Yeah. So what's most important to you, Kyle, about your personal legacy? Yeah. I, I I go back and I think about this question quite a bit, um, of like what I want legacy to be for my family and all that good stuff. Cause obviously I want to, I want to give my family enough to, to have, you know, a comfortable life. Um, but I don't want to give them enough to where they don't have to continue to keep pushing themselves and, and keep growing. And also, you know, even just growing what, what the legacy that I'm leaving behind too. So I go back and forth of, you know, what I want to do exactly on that side, but what I right now, just because I don't have a family, I don't have kids. So I don't really know that side of the story. I'm, I'm not married yet, but I have a lovely girlfriend. You've met Sam multiple times. Um, so right now for legacy for me, it's like really just having enough passive income to one, you know, exceed all of my expenses, but also, you know, be able to, to retain all this wealth and, and keep it because, you know, I look back at some of the houses I sold when I first got started and it's like, I really wish I would have kept some of those. I mean, I just didn't have the money, you know what I mean? So 
And I think as I keep growing that, like my legacy is, is really building a portfolio that's like indestructible um, to where, you know, and it's not going to just be only, you know, real estate. Cause I think that's a little, you know, crazy to just be only in real estate or any investment strategy. Um, but diversified along many different assets that, you know, essentially would create indestructible wealth. Um, so that way, you know, whether it's passed down to my kids or whether it's passed to charity or whatever the case might be, um, I think what I really just want to do is just make sure what I built stays um, and that gets, you know, appreciated. Do I care about them knowing my name? No, um, I don't think that necessarily matters as much as what I could help them to do in the future. Um, Cause essentially once you leave this planet, you, you, we don't really know what happens, right? Like we have, you know, there's a lot of things like, you know, I grew up being Catholic, you know, it was, you know, that whole point of view. And it's like, I don't know what happens afterwards. I could think for the best. I could think for the worst. Like, but all I know is right now I need to do what I can do to, to stay focused and build what I'm building uh, to help the people around me and hopefully help them enough to when they, when they leave. Cause I've seen, you know, some friends and family that, you know, have passed away and, and have kind of left their life in shambles to someone else. And, mm-hmm. and I don't want to be that burden on anyone on my family. And I want to have everything set up to where, you know, it's very automated where they don't have to think about it. It's, it's already going because we've set up the right people, the right processes, the right team around it yeah. um, to keep building the wealth that I was building. Yeah. So awesome. Yeah. Love it. Well, you're definitely making an impact yeah. in many, many lives and beyond your family too, and through your company and uh, also in the community. So uh, thank you. Appreciate you. you appreciate the time and uh, always great to spend time with you. Yeah. Always great too. Eric. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. And if today's show resonated with you, make sure you share it with someone you know and subscribe so you'll be the first to know when we drop the next episode. And if you know someone you think would make a great guest on the Live Your Legacy podcast, please reach out to us and get us connected. 